EMS One Academy, a training solution designed for EMS chiefs, offers more than 200 courses and 250 hours of continuing education. Our modern learning solution includes flexible reporting capabilities and features to upload agency-specific courses and track credentials for recertification. Easily streamline daily administrative workflow with EMS One Academy. Start your free trial. Visit www.emsoneacademy.com slash insideems. Well, here it is once again. It's time to go inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Subalero. And yes, I will say that there is only 17 shopping days till Christmas. But here's a guy who always keeps tabs on the dates. My good friend, Kelly Grayson. KG, what's going on down there in world-famous Pitkin, Louisiana? Oh, man, it's it's wonderful. I, uh, I, I got insulted or complimented yesterday. I don't know which. Well, go ahead and I, I share with us. And let me be the gauge of that. Let, let me be the gauge of that. I, I got asked by one of my uh, EMT students to be santa claus for their christmas parade oh my goodness yeah um <laughs> it's like uh dude yeah i don't know that i can give you a intelligent uh, answer so i'm i need more information but uh let's just save that one i don't want to be the jolly old elf i don't want to be that guy well you know i could see you in those pointy shoes but uh so you know kelly i think we've got a great discussion you know in the news uh the past week or so We've seen mm-hmm. this, this, you know, these conversations going on about the gentleman who had the do not resuscitate tattoo. And where does that leave to the quandary of EMS as to follow something like that? But I got to tell mm-hmm. you, I think one of the biggest challenges that I had as a paramedic, I think one of the biggest challenges I had as a supervisor, the biggest challenges I had as a EMS leader was there was always some type of uncertainty when it came to following advanced directives and, you know, what does it mean and what if they don't and they haven't produced. And so I thought it'd be really cool to kind of just kind of talk about our understanding of living wills, advanced directives. And then I would really like to hit towards the end of this show kind of that tattoo thing because uh, we're starting to see more things. I mean, we're starting to see jewelry. We're starting to see, you know, really high quality you know, necklaces and bracelets. And mm-hmm. so what's our responsibility when it comes to this, but I'm going to let you kick this off. Well, you know, the, I've, I've faced those same quandaries. You, you run into people that, that either don't have DNRs, uh, but, but don't want any resuscitation done on their loved one. Uh, uh, the, the loved ones, you know, demise came, came more quickly than they were prepared for. And they didn't have time to, uh, to do a DNR, um, or, or they had a DNR in the hospital and can't produce it, uh, and thought that the one that they had in the hospital is going to suffice for, uh, for out of hospital care and so on and so forth. And, and you get the other end of the spectrum as well. Uh, people that, that had DNRs, valid DNRs, uh, and then their family members wish you to invalidate that DNR and go ahead and resuscitate their loved one anyway, because everyone in this country, is afraid to have an intelligent discussion about end of life care. You know, we saw this during the, when the, when the ACA was, was being proposed and Sarah Palin was talking about death panels and and that sort of thing. You know, you don't want to call it a death panel, but that kind of, that, that kind of discussion needs to be had because we spend 
huge amounts of money and amounts of our Medicare budget and, and uh, healthcare budget on people in their last year of life. Um, and you don't want to give up on people and say that, you know, well, we're not going to provide you care anymore. But I think we have in this country unrealistic expectations of what medical science can do uh, to, to prolong life. And at some point, uh, it's not prolonging life. It's just prolonging suffering. And I think a lot of people don't get that. Um, and we get caught in the middle when we're called to a, a scene where a patient is obviously uh, um, unsalvageable or a patient who, who is not going to have a decent quality of life if we do manage to resuscitate them, uh, yet the family wants us to anyway. Yeah, and I, so, think, I think you bring up a couple good uh, points there. And I think <laughs> the first two that I want to touch on is the difference between a hospital DNR and the mm -hmm. difference between an out-of-hospital DNR. You are absolutely correct. If you have a DNR in a hospital and you leave the hospital, that paper now becomes null and void. And a lot of times when we are on scene and we'll ask the question, is there an advanced directive, they'll say, well, we were just in the hospital. And maybe they'll even produce the hospital DNR that's something, depending on the state, that may be null and void in the house, and you have to get an out-of-hospital DNR as well. Is that your understanding as well, Kelly? Yeah, that's that's been my understanding. We used to run into that problem fairly frequently. We don't as often anymore, but it's still an issue. Uh, we'll, we'll encounter a family member uh, or, or a, uh, a patient who had a DNR in the hospital, but they were discharged home, and the family was under the impression that the DNR uh, was valid outside the hospital. Uh, we don't see that sort of thing much anymore, and, and in most cases when when we uh, there is some issue, we can always call the, uh, the hospital and, and, and put it on the shoulders of the ER physician. Uh, on how that sort of thing should be held. But, but uh, you know, I ran into that very thing not uh, a couple of months ago. We had a, a cardiac arrest patient who, because of system demand and, and just wrong place at the wrong time, I wound up having a 45-minute response time uh, to an outlying part of another parish uh, with a cardiac arrest victim. And by the time we arrived, the, the – uh, a family member had stopped doing CPR. Uh, he hadn't been defibrillated, so he had this prolonged downtime. And after I started on him, the family member said, well, you know, I really didn't want all this stuff done. I just didn't know what to do. And I said, what do you mean you, you didn't? He said, well, he had a DNR in the hospital. Um, and I said, well, you know, and, and normally we, we, we can't really honor those. We have to, our, our protocols require that the DNR uh, must be produced at the scene. Uh, on the other hand, you've been working someone for 45 minutes uh, with pure BLS, uh, and he's, he's got an end-stage disease. There's a point where, where resuscitation just becomes an obscenity, uh, and we were, we were long since past that point. So I called the ER physician uh, at the, uh, at the uh, nearest hospital who was probably some podiatrist on uh, on call for a, a staffing agency and the man refused to give me any uh refused to give me um orders to terminate resuscitation he actually refused to give me orders for anything he was uh he was a uh, world-class uh responsibility dodger um so i wound up calling it myself um 
I got in a little bit of trouble for that because uh, uh, I deviated from from our protocol and that that uh, I could have called our medical control and, and received uh, orders to terminate resuscitation efforts. Um, and and I, I skipped that step. Shame on me. But, um, you know, but it's an example of, of the kind of, of, of uh, problems we face sometimes in dealing with these things when families have loved ones who are at the end of their life and they didn't have a plan for that eventuality. And I think that one of the things that we see all the time is exactly right, is how the, how the family is going to involve. So we talked about the in-hospital versus out-of-hospital DNR and basically how to go about that. You know, another thing we run across all the time, Kelly, is, is you kind of touched on it in your response was the family will say, we have, you know, we'll ask, is there a DNR? Or they'll say that they have a DNR and we'll ask, can we see it? Well, I don't know where it is right now. So now we're into the quandary of we really have to be able to see the paper to respect the family of saying that there is a DNR. How do we handle that on scene? Well, you know, I, I, that's a that's a very very thorny issue. Uh, the default response, in, as is in in most cases where there's a question where uh, that your protocols don't directly address, is that. Um, you put it on the shoulders of the medical control physician. Call them up, get them on a recorded line, and have someone with uh, with more training and, and education and deeper pockets than you make the decision. Um, but that that's not always feasible. We try to do that sort of thing, and and uh, um, I, I think every EMS or, or uh, care provider has probably run into one point or another a family member who wanted. Uh, patient resuscitated despite the presence of a valid DNR. There's just been a case, I can't cite the exact court, but I saw it in the EMS Newswire uh, just a, a couple of weeks ago, uh, where a patient that had a valid DNR was resuscitated uh, against their uh, DNR orders, uh, and the family sued uh, because uh, they they didn't honor their wishes. Um, and that's I think that has the potential to be huge in our uh, in, in our profession because you know ten years ago I wrote a blog post called "Calling All Personal Injury Lawyers" and I said there's 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 two areas that are ripe for an enterprising personal injury lawyer uh, to uh, to make some big money and to advance healthcare. Uh, instead of holding it back from fear uh, through defensive medicine and fear of lawsuits, and that's un un uh, uh, unlawful resuscitation and uh, wrongful spinal immobilization, uh, and and made the case that it would be easier to prove that spinal mobilization hurts people uh, and that when people uh, are immobilized against their will, we're actually doing harm to them uh, and easier to prove that, that uh, a patient had, had uh, wishes expressed in a valid DNR and that they resuscitated them against their will. Just trot grandma out in her hospital bed where they have to turn her like a houseplant every two hours uh, and play to the jury and get, a, get you a, a big, huge award. Um, and that is actually happening now. When you have that sort of situation, uh, the typical response is to put the physician on the on the phone. Um, but you explain to the family exactly what was going on uh, and give them some realistic expectations of what resuscitation will entail and what its limitations are. Uh, and I've had this very conversation um, probably as many times as you have where you tell the family, yes, we can do CPR right now, um, but... 
we are going to break ribs. We're going to have to drill a needle into her, uh, into the bone in her leg. We're going to push all sorts of medications, uh, and we're going to abuse her body. But isn't that just using a, isn't that just using a scare tactic to get them to say I don't want that? No, I mean, is that I, really what's going to happen? I mean, I think it, that yeah. Well, if it is a scare tactic, I'm proud to call it a scare tactic because it's not lying. It is true. We're going to break their ribs. We're going to push all manner of drugs and chemicals into them. Uh, resuscitation is not pretty, and most people have their their view of resuscitation. But it also, but it also could work. But it also could work. It also could work, but at but I'm not going to tell someone that that you know where uh, CPR has been ongoing for ten minutes that their loved one is unsalvageable. No, I you agree. Know, what so, I am going to tell them is is if we've been doing it for a prolonged period of time and Grandma hasn't left her hospital bed in ten years, uh, that um, because she has been her brain has been deprived of oxygen for so long that if we do get her back. It's not going to be the grandma they they remembered, uh, and she is likely going to live the rest of her her days suffering in that hospital bed, uh, unable to communicate or anything else. Um, and that's a realistic picture. Um, and I think people deserve a realistic picture when you're when you're talking about uh, care for their loved ones. I look at it this way, man. Um, I'm supposed to be an advocate. Um, and I'm not being an advocate if I'm doing something to someone that, is only going to result in prolonging their suffering. And at some point, resuscitation, particularly in the terminally ill, is just prolonging their suffering. So what, now, did it, what you're saying, though, there's a, difference between being, there's a difference between being a patient advocate and flipping the coin to say, I think they're suffering and I'm going to let them go. We don't, exactly. we, don't, we don't know where they are in their life. I mean, we could assume or we could suppose you have a bedridden grandma. She may, be, she may be as sharp as a tack when it comes to her consciousness when she's awake. But let me go ahead and switch gears with you, Kelly, because there's so much to get to on this topic. So let's go ahead and, and jump to the, the discussion about we have an advanced directive. We have a living will. We have a DNR. We're shown the DNR. But now the family member on scene saying, I don't care what that paper says. I want you to do everything you can do. I honor the DNR. Um, I'm not suggesting that everyone do that, but I have the luxury of, uh, in Louisiana, having DNR legislation that we passed in, I think, 1997 uh, that covers me um, when I do that. If there is a valid out-of-hospital DNR present, uh, or a living will present, and I honor the terms of that DNR, um, I am shielded from civil liability, period. Uh, even if the family, every family member is screaming at me, do something, do something. Uh, How do you handle that, though? How do you handle that? I mean, it's it's good that you have legislation to back you up, but in the heat of the moment, and for the people that don't have that luxury, Kelly, how do you handle that situation? Well, um, it's rare that you find that sort of thing where all of the family is is urging you to invalidate the DNR. Usually it's just the one family member uh, with grief issues because they haven't done or seen in, done anything for grandma or seen mom in 15 years and they didn't have a chance to say goodbyes and right old wrongs and, and say they're sorry and, and all that sort of thing and they're not ready to let go and they're the ones panicking. But the rest of the family has accepted uh, that, that death is, is inevitable. And in that situation, what I would recommend you do is you do the same thing that you do in every other situation where one family member uh, is being unreasonable and the rest of them aren't. 
the rest of them understand the situation. Um, like, for example, trying to convince your patient to go to the hospital when he really, really needs to go, uh, but he's not going to listen to you. But on the other hand, he will listen to his wife. That sort of thing. So you take the calm family member uh, that has some influence and you get them to exert their influence over the others. Uh, we, we do that when we're trying to convince a patient to go to the hospital. In this case, you just you get the calm family members, take them aside and, and, and have them communicate with the distraught family member uh, and, and do the convincing for you. That's one way to go about it. Um, it's like doing a death notification. That's a very delicate and sensitive thing to do. Um, and you have to practice that with some, some understanding and gentleness and, and compassion. Uh, you, you approach the communication with the distraught family member who wants something done in exactly the same way. And that's those instances where I will explain to them that the resuscitation of their loved one that they're asking for is not what they have in their heads. It's not the Hollywood resuscitation where you do a few compressions and then you shock them and push a drug and then all of a sudden uh, the family member opens their eyes and, and looks up at you with tear-filled grateful eyes and says thank you around their endotracheal tube. It's not that. What happens is, is the patient uh, gets a pulse back and they're teetering on the edge of life or death for the next several hours to days, and then they die a withered husk in an ICU room after running up a several hundred thousand dollar bill. That's the reality of resuscitation in that particular situation. But they don't understand that. Right. And, but they don't understand that because... Uh, by and large, a great many caregivers, and I'm including the physicians that discharge these people home from the hospital or don't bother to or, uh, or didn't take the steps to get an out-of-hospital DNR in place, they were uh, uncomfortable having that conversation with people. Um, and it sucks that we're put in a position to, to have to have that conversation uh, because someone uh, didn't uh, at a more appropriate time, but that's the situation that we're in, yeah. you know? Now let's let's go ahead and go what what got us here to this conversation, Kelly. And there's been a lot of comments on social media. There's been a lot of discussion in the periodicals. And how we got here today was this tattoo that someone had across their sternum that said "Do not resuscitate." Now, yeah. as I mentioned at the top of the show, we're starting to see more expensive jewelry that are saying, you know, diabetic, that are saying epileptic, that are saying. Uh, you know, whatever it is that the ailments are. And when we look at those, and we're, we're even asked to look for those and honor them when we see them and treat accordingly. But now if somebody has a tattoo across their chest that they went and they chose and they picked and they had put on their body permanently, what's our responsibility? Um, well, legally, uh, our responsibility is probably to still resuscitate the patient. It would certainly make me pause, hesitate, and, and look for some out uh, because at one point in their life, the patient cared enough about the issue to, to have a DNR tattoo. Um, but, Chris, you know, uh, a DNR tattoo uh, in a, a fit of despondency and, and depression or in drunkenness uh, can, can fit right there in the uh, – in the same category as the butterfly tattoo on someone's lower back when they were really drunk on spring break, you know, or let's not mock those, Chinese. let's not mock those lower back <laughs> tattoos. Okay. Yeah. Or, or the profound Chinese simple that really says broccoli beef, three ninety nine a pound. Um, you know, you, you, you can't have any assurance that, uh, the patient's mind hasn't changed since then. Now he had a DNR and he had his signature, um, 
uh, trace there uh, on his skin um, would have been a fairly simple step to put a DNR number or to put directions on where his physical DNR could be found. Uh, just a few extra letters. I don't know if tattoo artists actually charge by the letter, um, but spend a little extra money and get them to do that. You know, that, that DNR tattoo is not a new thing. Those things have kind of been floating right. around. Right. You're right. Uh, but but I, I think this is probably the first time that a, that a, a care provider has been faced with one. Um, uh but we have DNR jewelry now, as, as you alluded to. Right. And, and one of the things in, in, in our DNR legislation, uh, our Louisiana Secretary of State issues a DNR bracelet. It's a medical alert bracelet that has their, uh, that says DNR on the back of it and has their DNR order number. And legally, it has the same uh, force of law as a paper signed valid DNR. Uh, moreover, um, if you need the if you need the the terms of it, um, the Louisiana Secretary of State operates a DNR registry where you can uh, register your DNR, and caregivers, when the physical DNR is not present, um, can look up your loved one's name in that in that DNR database and, and find out if they do indeed have one. Uh, I think every state should have something like that. Uh, the really sad thing is is ninety nine point nine 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 percent of healthcare professionals in Louisiana don't even really uh, don't realize we even have such a thing. Uh, I have never encountered one of those DNR bracelets in the field because uh, we did a great job in getting the legislation passed. We did a piss poor job in in advertising the fact that it exists, so no one takes advantage of it. Yeah, and I think it does. I mean, I don't know that it really opens up the quandary. If I saw that tattoo, I certainly wouldn't use it as a directive. But one of the things that I would do, just to be fair as well, as, as you've mentioned, and one of the resources we don't use well enough is we don't talk with our medical control to say, this is what I've just come across. Mm -hmm. This way the responsibility doesn't fall on me to say, okay, I did or I didn't. I took directive from the, uh, you know, the physician that was on the other line. Yeah. Or I, I had consultation with the direct with the patient on the other side to say you know maybe we should do this but the final decision shouldn't fall for me because I don't have that authority in my scope of practice to make that happen and and I know yeah, that you and that I that was my mistake yeah. uh, in 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 that situation I should have called uh, Acadian's medical control physician and and spoken to her or him but that's what I did and that's what I think we want to know what you think Email us at the show at ems1.com. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. And for myself and co-host Chris Ceballero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week.